0: Hey guys, here I am, talking about this episode. You know, I noticed something in this episode, and it was weird. And then I did some behind-the-scenes look into it, and I was like, oh! And something that has been in the back of my mind, probably for the better part of two decades, possibly longer than that, finally makes sense. I've always noticed the big uh, changeover in season three, you know, new producers, new writing staff, uh, new effects styles, new sets. You know, there was a big overhaul. And of course, Season 1's going to look different, right? Shoestring budget, still finding their ground, etc. But I've never consciously been aware of how the lighting was different and how a lot of the lighting in Season 1 and in Season 2 is just generally darker. It's hard to really explain, but if you look at this episode and then you just... Like, like I actually did this. I actually pulled up this episode and then pulled up uh, an episode of, like... Uh, it was season three. I forget the name of the episode. It's the, the booby trap, I want to say. And you just look at them side by side. Same set, same area, you know, the bridge or the engineering or whatever. The difference is stark when you put it side by side. But it's the kind of thing that I never really cogitated until I actually was like, Oh, right. And I think the brighter look was part of what, what helps with the whole Season 3 thing as well. Although, we'll talk about that more when we get to Season 2, as weird as that may sound. So this is arguably Star Trek's first bottle show. Now, there is a chance you haven't watched my Voyager or my Babylon 5 stuff. So I've already talked about a lot of different concepts about television making and the procedures and concepts that go into making a television show. I've already talked about some of that in the TNG stuff, too, since it's relevant, especially to TNG's plight in the early years. And I imagine I'll be talking about that over on Deep Space Nine, because Lord knows they had issues, too. The relevant thing for this is the concept of a bottle show. Now, when this concept was first introduced to me, I actually misunderstood it. Uh, This was many years ago. I thought the concept of a bottle show was a show that has nothing to do with anything else. That's not actually a bottle show, though. A bottle show is a show that's cheap or I should say a bottle episode, but you know, whatever, they call, they use the terms interchangeably here. So a bottle show is when you've got one episode that uses pre-existing sets, pre-existing cast, very few or very low paid, basically, guest stars, no big special effects, no location shots, no fancy space battles or whatever. It's just nice and cheap. Now, For television, this is pretty much mandatory to do this kind of a thing because it boils down to you have X money for your season, right? This number isn't really changing unless other factors come in. And if you go over budget, you're probably going to be having some serious issues. Never mind the fact that you may lose your job as a producer for being the producer that went over budget without cause. In addition to that, the show might actually be canceled rather than continuing if it's just going to be a show that runs over budget unless there's something to justify it, of course. You know, like a show that really takes off can sometimes see its budget growth, you know, be acceptable. So you got this budget. Well, you look at this and you say, "Man, I really want to spend some money here." I want a good guest star for this episode. I want to do some location shots for this, and I want some really fancy effects for this episode. So that means these four episodes are... This is a really simplistic perspective, but you plan this all out ahead. These four episodes are going to be pricey. So I need four... Basically, I need to pull the costs down of other episodes accordingly to make it work. In addition to this, as I talked about before, Mr. Pine, I believe, who was the uh, the major executive in charge of the, the Star Trek division and other uh, television productions at Paramount at the time, was pretty much going to the Star Trek team and saying, Look, I need more money in the budget. I need you guys to be even cheaper than you're currently going. So they needed to pull back costs even further than most shows did. So you have a bottle show, and you look at this episode, and it's actually funny, because when you think about it, there are effectively four unique expenses in this. The outfits for the lizard people, forgive me for not remembering their names, the outfits for the mammalian people, lightning, and cloud. Now, that may sound like a lot, but that's a joke. That's the kind of thing that's not going to be super pricey. If anything, I'm actually impressed. They did a good job with the uh, the outfits for the lizard people and the mammalian people. Otherwise, they're just reusing existing sets and pretty much putting all of the lines into the main cast members so that they don't have to spend any additional money on it because the cast members are paid for. that They get their normal salary pretty much regardless. That's how that works. That being said, this is a very weird episode to me. Um, hang on one second. There we go. Sorry, I had to just adjust something on my computer really there. Really quick there. I want to like this episode. There's some good atmosphere. There's some good acting. Um, there's some passable directing. This is actually going to be uh, the first of many episodes directed by this gentleman. I forget his name. Uh, we'll, we'll see him in the future. We'll see how good he does in the future. But, you know, it's, it's passable directing. Um, there's some other things I'll talk about later, you know. Effects are decent. But, it's, God, its script is terrible. I'm, I'm sorry. This is, this is an idiot plot. You remember how, again, maybe you didn't see my Voyager stuff. I talked over in Voyager about the difference between a stupid plot and a smart plot. Quick summary. A smart plot makes sense, you know, fits the characters, fits the setting, is logical, and treats the audience like they have a brain. A stupid plot Doesn't make sense, does things that don't make sense in character or don't make, you know, don't actually follow the logic of the setting and treats you like you're an idiot. And that's this episode. I'm actually surprised at how upset I am at this episode. And I kept, it just kept doing it too, over and over. It kept pissing me off. (sighs) I'm sorry. Let me start by saying, uh, you know what? before I get to the script, because I do have many things to say about the script, let me talk about something I've been noticing, and I would like to, to make a point of marking down when this stops. If you remember, one of the things I talked about extensively throughout Voyager and Babylon 5 was the very concept of a teaser. Now, again i'm going to assume you haven't seen that stuff so just super brief the point is it's the stuff that plays before the first commercial break and then it comes back from commercial and then the episode actually starts the whole point of a teaser ph- philosophy you know the philosophically speaking is to catch your attention and keep you sitting in your chair through the commercial break so you're so you're there when the episode starts that's the entire point of a teaser now whether that's valid or not is something that's a lot more debatable. It's not a hard, you know, hard iron rule of television. It's something a lot of shows do and have done for decades, many, many, many decades. And the whole idea is, I mean, even shows that are made today do the concept of a teaser, which is even weirder nowadays when you have television that doesn't have commercials. Like you'll see stuff on Netflix or Amazon that does a teaser. And it's like, why are you doing this? You know, it's the stuff that goes before the credits. Okay. (laughs) Now, they do have to do the credits because of uh, legal reasons and the SAG and all that, but it's still weird that they assist this. But anyways, getting back to my point, I've often said that with only a few exceptions, a short teaser tends to work better than a long teaser. Now, a long teaser can work, and I've pointed out several times, especially on Voyager, where long teasers worked. Now, I've noticed this before, but this episode really struck at home. This is over four minutes of a teaser for this episode. And a lot of information is digested in that teaser. And I wonder at which point TNG stops doing that. Because I know further into Star Trek, they will start to have, in TNG specifically, they'll start to have shorter teasers. Even DS9, which I've already started covering, has shorter teasers than this. So I'm really finding myself wondering when they changed their mind on that. So I'm going to be watching for that. Hopefully I'll remember. I, I will try to. It's something I'm really interested in. Now, speaking of the teaser, right at the beginning we have a fascinating political scenario. Now, okay, I mentioned this last episode, if you remember last week. I know I'm kind of known for writing dark stories, and I'm known for writing political stories, and I know I'm know i known for writing war stories. Those are, It's pretty much my bag, okay, whatever. So forgive me for wanting more political storytelling in my Star Trek. But when I say political, I mean more Games of Thronesy, not cnn For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's you know, distinction. But we have this fascinating idea of a system that has two sentient sapient races that have developed on this one system, and both of them have re- had the same relative path of technological development. So they're pretty evenly matched and they both reach out to the stars at relatively the same time. They are at war. They immediately go into competition over you know, ridiculous economic reasons and you know, all sorts of other reasons like that. Um, so, you know, wha, there they are. And so both of them, when they are, when they get into contact with the greater galactic community, find out about this federation and both of them petition for entry. And that's fascinating to me, because sitting back, you know, from a Games of thrones political sort of perspective, you think of that and say, that's, a, that's a, exactly right. That's exactly what should happen. Both of them want the advantage of being in the Federation. Both of them are afraid of the other one getting that advantage. Both of them see this as a maneuver that it, is the kind of thing that they should be desperately involved in. They should be doing everything they can to ensure that this greater galactic power, this I'm trying to think of a really good parallel here. Forgive me. Ah, oh, I can't think of one. I'm sorry. I was going to use uh I was gonna use Castile and Portugal, but that doesn't quite work. You know, point being <laughs> this this greater power exists, and we are this much lesser power, and we have enemies right at our doorstep. Duh, right? All of this makes sense. And immediately I'm hooked. I'm like, oh man, I can't wait to learn about this. This is gonna be fantastic. this is never touched on again in this episode, uh, or ever actually, this delicate careful political scenario, which is so engaging to me, I have written entire stories plural about it in my own Imperium storylines because I've got the Empire, right? Analogous to the Federation, and sometimes there's a planet which has more than one power on it. What do you do about that, right? It's a complicated situation from both perspectives You know, I I talked about this on my stream once. What if France, real life, was like, hey, you know, Federation, we want to join you. And France, and only France, petitioned for entry into the Federation. What do you do about that? What does the Federation do? They can't just outright say no, but you could see why they'd be disinclined to say yes. What if it's worse? What if, let's rewind time a little bit, okay? Cold War era, all right? 70s, let's do that, you know, mid-70s. And the Soviet Union and the United States of America both find out that there's the Federation in real life. Just go with me on this. They find out about the Federation, and they both petition, and they say, hey, we want to join. And of course they do. Like, if I say, I know, uh, uh, getting past the obvious silly factor, the moment you really find out that there's a bigger power out there and you have an active enemy that's just staring down its guns at you. Oh, it's so logical. Like I bet if I brought this scenario up, you'd be like, "Well, like without saying, all right, what do you? You've just found out there's this federation. What do you do?" I bet money that most people would say, "Well, obviously you try to join before the other one does." Worst case scenario. Well, the worst case scenario is you don't get in and they get in, in which case it's all over. But. You know, the, the arguable worst case scenario here, given the beneficial, nice, etc. federation, would be that both powers get in, so if, if at the very least, we can no longer, we no longer have to worry about our enemies over there, we still hate them, we still don't want to interact with them, but at least they're restricted from attacking us, so we can well, focus and develop in other ways, right? Best case scenario, we get in and they don't! Yeah! Come on! Hit me! I dare you! I got friends now. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I know I'm just talking about this one point, but it's such an engaging and interesting idea that has so much potential. It could have been an entire story arc across multiple episodes by itself, and they throw it away by the end of the teaser. I hate to skip ahead in my notes here, but you know we, we go through the rest of this, and there's like a couple of scenes with Yar dealing with them, and the way it's presented the way it's acted the way the music is done the way the camera work is done the way the lines work on the paper is that every scene with them is a comedy scene <laughs> no of course we weren't we weren't going to be doing anything with that we just like he- eating we were eating for many hours and oh how barbaric that you you don't cook and kill your animals while they're still alive and oh ha <laughs> we've captured you oh sorry sorry wrong species when did this turn into threes company is it's so weird that in this episode the dark serious well I shouldn't say it that way but the way the episode frames it is that the dark serious plot is about the alien energy cloud body hopping from party me- party member wow I've been playing too much D d lately from character to character and the comedy plot is... Is the two warring alien races who are involved in a blood feud on the Enterprise. In the coda, Yar shows up and is like, oh my god, and Picard's like, hey, what's up? And Riker's like, can this wait? And Yar's like, but, but there's, and, and she, it, it, it's not fully implied, but the idea is that they've actually started killing. That they've actually started killing each other on the Enterprise. And it's like, I don't feel like dealing with this. Dun, 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 dun. dun. You know, I mentioned the CODA problem last time. What the hell are they thinking with this? <sighs> that being said, it was nice to see Mark Alemo and Colm interact on camera for the first time. Yeah, that's right. How many of you are aware that the uh, mammalian guy, the main mammalian guy, was played by Mark Alemo? It was actually his very first time on Star Trek, ever. He plays a small smattering of roles before he finally becomes Gul Dukat. But I admit I never caught this one. I'll, 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 I'll toss my hand up on that one. However, when I was watching this one, I was like, you know, checked the credits. Aha! You know, obviously. But then if you just listen to his lines, close your eyes, you know, ignore the costume, ignore the weird echoing effect they put on his throat and just listen to the way he speaks, you can tell it's him. He's got that unique, Pattern, almost rhythm to the way he speaks. And it, and it kind of speaks to Marco Lemo's personal charisma as well. It's one of the reasons why Goldicott is such an engaging character. Cause he just comes across, ah, da da I talk about that. I have talked about that over on DS9 already as well. So, that was cool. <sighs> 29 minutes, 47 seconds in. This is also the second appearance of Colmini, uh, in Star Trek. So, woo, good to see him back as well. All right, so now that we're done with the interesting part, let's talk about the stupid plot. (sighs) So first of all, they encounter an energy cloud that is traveling at warp. They flat out say it's traveling at warp. This isn't me interpreting streaking lights as warp, even though I would be fully in my rights to do that. They say in the script, traveling at warp. Okay, let's do a quick pass of it. Not through it, by it. So naturally, the Enterprise goes through it. Yes, I know they have that throwaway line about it expanding its shape or whatever, but come on. So they go through it at impulse. I'm sorry, I know this sounds nitpicky, but at what point did the energy cloud stop going at warp so the Enterprise could stop going at warp so they could have this little love tap or whatever the hell's going on? And then, of course, the energy being gets trapped. Uh, no. <sighs> right. I need to do that. I need to make a point. I'm going to get a piece of paper somewhere. I don't have one yet. And I'm going to write down every time Worf gets his ass kicked by the Alien of the Week. Because this is the first time right here. Uh, the alien thing goes... He, 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 I like Michael Dorn, but he makes the most ridiculous face. I, I can't even do it. As as he's being electrified. <laughs> So, that happens, and then medical emergency, end teaser. (sighs) Then Crusher goes down to examine Worf, and gets possessed by the alien. (sighs) I I have my notes here. A lot of these are written in caps and with underlines. This pissed me off. I, I hate it when a script treats me like I'm three. So, the energy being passes on to Crusher, Dr. Crusher. She acts weird, and I will, and as I said earlier, I give credit to the actors. Several of the actors, most notably, Patrick Stewart, of course, do a good job of portraying them possessed as a completely different character than them normally. And what I like about it is most of them just portray themselves as kind of pseudo-zombie-like when they're possessed. Picard, possessed, comes across as a completely different character. You can see, like, a smattering of Picard's personality in the pontificator, and in, in, the, in the histrionics of how he presents himself. And then, of course, it's not him, but I'll get to that in a second, because that's... So, Crusher gets possessed, and then Troy is like, Huh, I wonder if something's wrong. Nah! Even though she's acting completely differently and, frankly, illogical and kind of rude, too. But no, that's totally normal, right? Of course. So then Crusher goes home and meets her son, who you'd think would know her pretty well. And Wesley doesn't catch up on any of this at all. And we know this because throughout the whole episode, the only time this comes up at all is when he mentions later. Remember when I was telling you about that? Didn't even register that something was wrong with his mother. Then she goes to the bridge, talks with Picard, and Picard... Doesn't notice anything about her. And then she goes to the computer, and Data talks with her, and Data doesn't note anything wrong with her. He even points out that what she's doing is a flat-out contradiction to what she said, and shrugs it off. So, I just want to make this 100% clear. Because they could have made it like Ensign Nobody, and you know, uh, Lieutenant Bob, and maybe Tasha Yar, if you want to have a main character there, and Jordy. okay? You could have had the people interacting with Crusher be people who don't know her. But no, they made a, the empath, her son, her arguably best friend, who there's already some kind of history going for, and Lord knows we know that they become best friends and possibly more in the future, and the super hyper-intelligent android. The four most likely people on the, on the entire ship to determine that something's wrong with Crusher and that she's being possessed by some kind of alien notice nothing at all. And then when Crusher is released, her reaction to suddenly being on the bridge is, huh, I wonder why I'm here. Oh well, I'll just go back down. I'm not three episode. I swear. <sighs> now, I know what you're thinking. Well, hang on, hang on. I mean, what would I? how would I react? Well, f- first of all, I do have a brain, and I do have the ability to tell when someone is acting differently. Now, in real life, that usually means something is wrong, and I try to approach that with a bit of tact, but I do approach that are you upset is everything going alright is there some unknown stress is there something I can help you with you know something's up I'm not a moron okay I've had this happen with people online who I've never met in my life who I can approach them you can ask some of my viewers because I've done this to some of my viewers I've been like dude you've been a little odd lately is everything okay cuz I have a brain because I'm not free but so if my mother, or if my best friend, or if I was a hyper-intelligent android, or if I could read brains, or at least emotions, depending on the needs of the script, (laughs) you'd think I would be a little more capable of being like, hey, something's wrong there. Later on, they try to bullcrap their way around this, by the way. Later on, there's a scene where Troy's there, and they say, Troy, why didn't you call this out? And Troy's like, well, I sensed a dual personality. And everyone's just like, okay, what? Oh, it's okay, you always have a dual personality, obviously, silly. I wanted to smack whoever wrote that line. That is such a cheap way around it. That is literally just the writer saying, like, I can just picture it. The writer's like, hang on, hang on, just, where's my pen, where's my pen, just, you know, writing, writing, like, hang on a second. I need to point out why Troy doesn't pick up on it. I've got it! She's a moron! Except, obviously, that's not what he writes down, but you get my point god damn it then then after all this weirdness with wharf crusher and the ship going weird then they're like damn our ship must be malfunctioning gosh golly chucker geez and they spend, I think, like 10 minutes. I, I wasn't paying attention, but it's well over at the halfway point through the episode. So it's several, several minutes on basically a C-plot of we need to diagnose the Enterprise. Because clearly the Enterprise is broken. By the way, they'll revisit this in the future with the whole Iconian episode. I forget the name of the episode, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so this is, this is something to come back to. Clearly there must be something wrong with the ship. This is also when they mention the ship's pretty much straight out of space dock. You know, launched... ...for the mission to encounter at Farpoint. Their first mission. This ship is like a few weeks old at this point. Maybe months. But no. Something's wrong with the ship. So when they start going down the list... And what's funny... What's really stupid... Is there's some genuinely good deduction in this episode... ...with regards to certain things. Like how the aliens... The two people I mentioned earlier... ...can't be involved in the sabotage. And how the likelihood of the ship being this broken... Given the circumstances, logically does not make sense, and they do some actual deductive reasoning to determine that something is sabotaging the ship, and that that and that makes sense. That's correct. So, <laughs> anyways, so also quick note: uh, they bring up the Ferengi as a possible saboteur in this. And I I found myself grinning a little bit at that because this was before they had decided the Ferengi were no longer the Ferengi and started replacing the word Ferengi in scripts with the word Romulan. Quick aside about television production. I'll be mentioning this again when it comes up, but just really quick. Like I said, you plan out a season in advance. So they already knew, like walking in before they started filming Encounter at Farpoint, that the Ferengi were going to come out throughout the season because you planned that out, right? That's how that works. So it makes sense that there would be several instances, and there are, of mentioning the Ferengi as a possible antagonistic force, the same way uh, that you would imagine uh, the original series and the Klingons, although they didn't intend that, but you get the idea. Anyway, so the Ferengi are brought up, woohoo! And Argyle is even mentioned as well. (laughs) I don't think I noticed that ever before, but Argyle's meant... He's not on screen. Instead, they have Engineer, I'm about to die. Uh, I forget his name. He dies. He dies. Also, I just really feel like pointing out that Wesley, the kid who can't tell his mother's been possessed by an alien when she's acting really weird, um, shows up the engineer like that correctly diagnoses where the issue is and then is sent off to school with all the little kids just to show how unfairly he's treated. This is what I like to personally think of as the Nickelodeon effect. It's not something I talk about a lot, so I don't really refer to it that much on my loreums. but it's the Nickelodeon effect. You know, the kids are always smart and the adults are always stupid. Anyways, so Wes points that out. Then, of course, and Jordy's in engineering, of course he is, and then the ship just fixes itself. The malfunctions are gone. There's even a scene where Wesley points out... I'm sorry, there's two scenes where Wesley points out that can't happen and that can't happen, respectively. And then Geordi says, well, it's the results that matter, right? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> I just... Huh... And then, all of this thing with Wesley, and he goes in and he smugs to his mother for a bit about how superior he is, only matters because it's a way to to crudely exposit the fact to her that he was talking to her about this specific theorem earlier in the episode, which she has no memory of. And this, this is the first moment in which they decide something must be up. So with with all of the evidence at their disposal, with all the technology at their disposal, with everything they can do, they bring in Worf and Beverly and they say, let's do hypnosis. Let's hypnose your brains in order to get... Now I know this was written in the 80s when hypnosis wasn't really, really derided as an actual psychological or psychiatric technique, but frickin' really... And that's what they do. That's how they find their smoking gun. In an episode that is framing itself as a mystery. That's the whole theme of the episode, or at least it's the intended theme of the episode. The mystery. The mystery of the cloud. The mystery of the malfunctions on the ship. And the mystery of, you know, what's going on and what this entity is and all that fun stuff. It's always about a mystery. They even bring up Sherlock Holmes in this episode. I'll talk about that in a minute. I haven't brought it up yet. So it's like, oh, mystery, mystery. So in this mystery episode, they're like, we must get to the bottom of this mystery. And again, earlier than this, they use actual deductive reasoning and logical displacement of facts. Or not displacement, that's the wrong word. A logical, I guess, deduction? Uh, processing. Logical processing of facts in order to come to conclusions, which are accurate. And then they say, all right, now that we've done that, Look into my eyes! I'm sorry, this is really... So then... I'm sorry, I'll talk about the Holmes thing in a second. I really will. But then the energy being hops into Picard approximately eight inches to the left of Geordi's face. Now... I understand that some people think that Metal Gear Solid is actually a realistic documentary, but believe it or not, periphery vision is in fact a thing, as is the ability to hear things that are loud and crackly, like visible lightning. And Geordie's even like, I swore I saw something. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know why I threw an accent on the bean, I swore I saw something. What's going on here? Picard's like, no, no, everything's fine. Immediately starts acting differently. Troy doesn't notice anything. Jordy doesn't notice anything. Data doesn't notice anything. Riker doesn't notice anything. And then he's like, ah, yes. Right, I'm going to act completely different. here. I'm going to give some weird orders while acting completely different. You know, even if you'd never watched Star Trek before, ever, I guarantee you that anyone with even a modicum of intelligence could look at this episode and say, well, Picard's possessed. You know how I can tell that? Aside from the really obvious lightning thing, let's assume the lightning thing was cut out. Let's assume that it was invisible and inaudible. Let's give them that, although they don't give them that. Let's say that all you have is the way they act. Anybody watching this could tell immediately that Picard is different because Patrick Stewart plays him completely differently and does a good job. I already give credit for that. But more to the point, it's not just the way he acts, it's what he tries to do. He has spent the entire episode pretty much hammering the point. We need to get to the con- conference. We need to get to the conference, fix the ship on the way to the conference. The moment the warp tries fixed, it's back to the-, the conference. Let's go to the conference. Turn around. Let's go explore that cloud. <laughs> Just the moment. And then they do this stupid dance, which I swear was written for padding. I know it's a bottle show. I know it's they're trying to reuse sets and they're trying to do whatever, but I swear they go through this whole mutiny thing for relieving him from command. For drama's sake and for no actual purpose. Everyone knows something's wrong. They have already proven with their voodoo magic, and, you know, actually using their brains, that there's something sabotaging the ship and possessing people. And yet, they now have very, very likely evidence that Picard is in this situation. And they're waffling about doing something about it. Should we? I don't know. I mean, can we? And they go through all this military procedure would be involved in a mutiny because starfleet's a military i'm never letting that go i i apologize i should i should shouldn't hammer it in i literally right before i watched this episode i had a long discussion about starfleet military so it's kind of on my mind i do apologize forgive me so they do go through all the procedures of exactly what will be necessary which officers which circumstances the other people willing to back them up. Should we do this? It's going to be a big problem if we're wrong. Why do, Why are you even entertaining the thought that you're wrong at this point? With everything that's happened. And is happening. And then they go to Picard and he basically rolls a 20. Hang on, hang on. Get sound effect here. I, I don't have anything hard. Here we go. We'll do it here. There we go. Oh my god, I actually did roll a 20. That's hysterical. I really did. I, I know I have no way of proving it, but I did. Anyway, so he, he rolls a 20 on his bluff check. He's like, oh, nope. I think you should go get yourselves checked out. And I think I'm going to act very much not like Picard. Now go away and get yourselves checked out. And they capitulate. <sighs> what? And so all of that was for nothing. And then, when Crusher approaches him in private, he admits to being this alien entity thing just flat out admits it yeah no wee they even add of of reverberation to his voice for no goddamn reason just for this scene wee <laughs> what if i may really quick i would like to think that the reason he admitted it there was it was with crusher regardless of romantic possibilities or entanglements, there's always been some obvious chemistry and friendship between the two, even at this point in the series. So I like the idea that he's willing... He's, it's more likely for Picard to push through the energy being to open up to her. Just a quick thing. Anyways. So then, ha! Ah, I am me, and we are thee. And then he gives his big histrionic speech about what happened, and then he electrocutes the crew because screw you, and then he beams out and dies! No, I'm serious. think about this for a minute we i can accept the idea that matter in and energy are actually being transported rather than replicated i can get by that idea it makes a degree of sense in my head i am not one of those people that thinks every time you go through the transporter, you die okay not on board with that idea never have been never will be all right you with me so far However, one thing that is made fairly clear in this episode is that the way they get Picard back is the energy gets on board, and then they rebuild him with the pattern from before, before he beamed out, which means any memory of being out there and whatnot is gone, and of course his memory is boggy because of the possession in general. So the Picard that went out there but, I mean, and then the energy comes back. But does the energy go into the old Picard? <laughs> because I suppose I shouldn't say die. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm willing to at least entertain that the same energy, life force, um, katra, you know, pa, soul, whatever the hell you want to call it, comes back and reenters a recreation of his earlier body. And that recreation of his earlier body has the memories of the earlier body because brain, memory engrams, etc. Okay, I'm willing to at least go with that. So I'm willing to at least believe that this might be the same Picard. But the way it was framed, I th- and I think this is a mistake on the writer's part, is that it's, you know, the Picard that went out there is dead. <laughs> and the Picard we get is effectively a clone from before he went out there. I... Now, I don't think that's actually what happened. I'm pretty sure the writers are just morons. and don't really know how to properly present an idea clearly and decisively. Instead, it's just the energy pattern, but it's differentiated, but he can't do anything, but now we have to try this wild idea. They even flat out call him this Picard rather than Picard. Anyways, so that happens. But there's one thing I haven't talked about yet, and that's the Sherlock Holmes thing. Let me take a moment and say that in this mo- in this episode, which frustrated the hell out of me, it's probably obvious and I do apologize for my rancor, but in this episode, there was one shining beacon throughout it that made it so that this isn't Lamentation territory, and that would be Data and the Sherlock Holmes stuff. Now, first of all, seeing Brent Spiner do his Data doing his Sherlock Holmes impression was actually quite a treat and will be in the future as well. And he does a good job with it. Also, As we know, you know, looking back, uh, this was intended to be another character arc that was going to be expanded in the future. Which I like, especially because if you really sit back and think about it, it makes perfect sense. Remember, we have a very intelligent android who lacks emotion. Now, writing stories for a character like that is actually trickier than you'd think. You can only go so far with the Pinocchio arc. You need to do something more with that. And they have done some good stuff with Data over the years, so credit where credit is due. But the way they phrase it in this episode makes it clear. This was something someone sat down and said, we need to do this with Data. Because they phrase Sherlock Holmes as someone who has a job centered around solving problems. And that's the kind of thing that you can see, and we will see, very much appeals to someone like Data. Someone who isn't just hyper-smart or anything like that, but who actually enjoys intellectual challenges or creativity, like stretching, like trying new things, right? And that's cool. And I love the, the logic of that. I love how that is presented. I love how Spiner presents himself as it. I love how he takes to the, you know, the... I can't do it. I don't actually have a pipe, obviously. But, you know, he's, he's got the pipe all the time. Elementary! And, of course, it's in addition to the Sherlock Holmes things, those are the best scenes in the episode, because they involve actually using your brain rather than being told stupid things and being, and being forced to swallow it. It is a damn shame that, thanks to legal issues, which we will talk about when we get there, that the Sherlock Holmes plot basically had to be completely abandoned instead of being a recurring subplot and, and character arc, and would only show up like two or three more times after that, after its initial shouting. Because legal issues make everything better. But I do also want to say uh, one quick thing about that. This is something that will that'll come up many times, because the question of what is an emotion is a trickier one than you'd think. Like, obvious emotions are easy. You know, anger. Does data feel anger? No. Does data feel joy? No. Does data feel fear? No. There you go. You got your three basic axes of emotions. Now I know there's a lot of different theories on how to quantify emotions. I'm just trying to lay this out. I'm just some guy on YouTube. What do you want from me? (laughs) And occasionally Twitch. So, you got these axes of emotion, right? Now, where does satisfaction sit? Now, I mentioned that because I've always been of the opinion that satisfaction isn't actually an emotion. It can lead to emo- an emotion, you know, being pleased or smug or or superior era superiority or anything like that, but, you know, arrogance. But I don't think satisfaction itself qualifies as an emotion. This is just my opinion. You know, the base element of circuit complete equals positive, is not something I would quantify as an emotion. I mention this because Star Trek agrees with me. Um, this has been something that's been presented several times with Spock already, and they will do this with Data as well, that Data, for lack of a better term, enjoys things. Hence why this whole Sherlock Holmes thing makes sense, because the idea of being a professional solver of puzzles appeals to him. It is something he likes. And you see how we're kind of dancing just on the outer edge of what is an emotion and what isn't an emotion and how that could be quantified. It's not like he's exuberant. It's not like there's happiness. But there is an appeal there, right? And something appealing to you doesn't have to necessarily be an emotion either. It's kind of a gray area. Again, what you define as that is up to you. And as ever, I'd love to hear your guys' comments. But Star Trek's writers made it pretty clear that they consider that gray area to be acceptable for data. And I think they did a good job with it. I personally am willing to go with them on that. The idea that something can be considered a positive, you know, calculatively in the brain, rather than simply being in emotionally invocative, if that makes any sense. And since he does have the whole morality subroutines and blah blah blah, that just lines up for me. Anyways, I don't have anything else to say on the subject. (sighs) Sorry for the rant. And I do hope to see you guys next time.